Revelation chapter 8, starting at verse 6. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea was turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned, to, turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic, gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared, prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name is Hebrew, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, 
dark blue and yellow as sulphur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or or their thefts. And the second reading is taken from Revelation 11, uh, starting at verse 15, which is on the next page. I'm sorry, at the bottom of that page. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has come, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who have reverence for your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Thanks, John. Nice to see you. My name's Paul. When you have those kind of readings, you're thinking, oh, I should have preached Philippians or Ephesians. So much easier. Uh, if you're new tonight, we're in the middle of a series on the book of uh, Revelation. It's a, a great letter of the Bible. It's important we understand it. Uh, if you haven't grasped it, I think chapter 1, verse 19 is probably a key verse for the whole book. Uh, 1, verse 19 says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what, and what will take place later. And that's really the, the whole book. What John sees in chapter 1 is the, is the risen, ascended Lord Jesus who sits on the throne in 4 and 5. The what is now is his letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, describing the church. And the what is to come is really uh, chapters 6 to the end. The, the, the things that are going to happen in this world as we live, post-Christ, but before his return. And so we're in the middle of these, these visions. Uh, we had the seven seals last week where we looked at you know, wars and famines and, and plagues. And we're in the seven trumpets tonight. And really tonight is about uh, what to expect in the here and now as you prepare to meet your God. And when you read the Bibles, whenever you, people meet with God, there seems to be trumpets. You know? uh, back in Exodus at Mount Sinai where they went to meet with their God, there was mountain of smoke and fire. And then the trumpets were there. In 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about the Lord Jesus returning, he comes with a blast of the trumpets. And the trumpets seem to be announcing the the coming of the king. And so what do you expect life to be like now as you wait for the coming of your king? That's my question for you tonight. I'm going to tell you two two, true stories. 
Uh, Kelly was uh, born with uh, kidney issues. Uh, she spent most of the first 15 years of her life in and out of hospital. Uh, she ended up on dialysis. Uh, I think it was three or four days a week which going for dialysis. Got to a stage where she either needed a transplant or she would die. A donor was found, and the best donor actually was one of her family, a family member. And this family member agreed to donate one of their kidneys to Kelly. Now, Kelly knew that her pain and her suffering was about to end. She was about to have a transplant, but she didn't have it yet. She had to wait weeks or months before she had the transplant. How is she going to live in that waiting stage where she knows what she's about to receive, but she's still suffering, she's still in pain? It's a bit like a Bobby. Bobby was a, an orphan in Sudan, in war-torn Sudan. He was adopted by American missionaries. But you know what red tape is like. It took years for it to happen. And so, so Bobby had officially been adopted, but he was still living in war-torn Sudan. Oh, he enjoyed some of the benefits. No, so he, had, he had new clothes to wear. He had better health. Uh, he had more security because he had a family he was going to go and live with. But he was still living in a Sudan. He wasn't at home yet in the USA with his new family and his new friends and a new life. He was waiting. And as he waited, he experienced the suffering and the pain and the agony of living in Sudan. And friends, that is us. We are waiting. We are waiting for the day when we see our Savior face to face with unveiled faces. And we're waiting for the day where there's no pain and no suffering and no crying and no death. But that is not now. That is future. The now is we're waiting. And as we wait, we enjoy some of the benefits. We enjoy the, the promise of forgiveness. Uh, we enjoy the, the blessings of God in the everyday that he provides food and clothes and shelter for you and friendships and money and uh, we provide some of the, the great blessings of experiencing his, his compassion or his kindness or his goodness. But we haven't fully experienced all the blessings of heaven yet. That's then. This is now. And we're waiting. And we're waiting. And we're waiting. Waiting is a funny thing, isn't it? You know, when you're waiting for exams to happen, you know it's going to happen. But there's that fear and there's anxiety as you prepare for it. Uh, you're waiting for a baby, you know, there's that mixed emotions of, of dread, am I going to go to cope with this, but this excitement and this joy of a family, or you're waiting to get married, and you're thinking, I'll oh, get on with it, come on, let's get it over with. Let's get that wedding day over with and get on with life. Now, waiting and waiting and waiting. That's what we're doing. So what is your attitude to the waiting period? That's my question. And the answer is found in Revelation 8 to 11. What do you expect life to be like? Firstly, there's chaos. That's what you should expect to see in God's world today. Chaos in God's world. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 when God made the earth, when God created his world? How did God describe his creation back in Genesis 1? God made the world and he said it was... Good. The stars were good, the mountains were good, the trees were good, the earth was good, the people was good, the whole earth was very, very good. Is that how you would describe our world today? 
Is that how you describe creation today? The elements today, good? No. Because Genesis 3 happened, the fall happened. Sin entered the world and we rebelled against God and we ignored God and we suffered all the consequences. And the consequence of the fall is not just about your relationship with God. And the consequence of the fall is not just about your relationship with other people. The consequence of the fall is that our creation is no longer perfect. The Bible says our creation is is groaning. And you see that, don't you? You see earthquakes and cyclones and... Uh, volcanoes and floods and mudslides and we don't live in Eden anymore. We don't live in Eden anymore. This is not a perfect world anymore. We're waiting for that. And so our expectation now should be that there will be chaos in God's world. And that's with the first four trumpets, a picture of disaster in God's world. Come with me as I walk through chapter 8. 8 verse 7, the first trumpet, the first angel sounded the trumpet and there came hail. Now hail in the Bible is always a sign of judgment. There came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. It makes the Victoria bushfires look just minuscule. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. No trees means that you've got no food, no fruit. And then all the green grass was burned up. And a world without grass means that you have no food for your cattle or your goats or your sheep. And so you have no produce and it's just devastation. And the second trumpet in verse 8, the second angel sounded his trumpet in something like a huge mountain. All ablaze was thrown into the sea. And this time it's not the earth that's impacted, it's the sea. Because the sea was turned into blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. There's no fish, there's no food, the ecological cycle is in ruin. But it's not just the earth, it's not just the seas, it's also the fresh water with a third trumpet. Uh, Verse 11, the name of the star is Wormwood and a third of the waters turned bitter. And many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Can you imagine a world where there's no drinkable water? I struggle going to developing countries where you can't drink the tap water. You have to buy some bottled water. But can you imagine a world where you can't turn the tap and get fresh water and you can't buy any bottled water and all the water is just undrinkable? It's just utter, utter devastation because you'd be dehydrated, there'd be disease and there'd be death. The earth suffers, the seas suffer, the fresh water suffers and the skies suffer. Verse 12, the fourth trumpet is sounded and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark and a third of the day was without light and, a third of the, and a third, also a third of the night. Living in a place where there's no sunlight. It's just this picture of, of the elements, the earth, the seas, the fresh water, the skies, the whole of God's natural environment is all facing chaos and judgment. Now, isn't that what we see today? Turn on the TV yesterday, and you see a volcano erupting in Iceland. Oh, but that's just miles away. No, the impact of that volcano is being felt by thousands and thousands of people as the whole of the, 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 uh, the airlines over Europe are shut down. 
But I please pray for my parents who are stuck in the UK at the moment, <laughs> trying to get to here for the wedding next week. Um, but the consequence of that volcano is horrific. It's not just the volcanoes. Now, in 2009, you don't hear about them, but you know there were, there were mudslides in El Salvador that killed thousands. Uh, there was a, a cyclone in Canada that killed thousands. Uh, the, the floods in Bangladesh in 2004 covered almost two-thirds of the country. 25 million people impacted by those floods. Uh, the tsunami on Boxing Day 2004, 230,000 people dead. Uh, the earthquake in Haiti even this year. Uh, millions of people lost their lives or are facing disease. And we saw it here in our own country last year with the, the bushfires. In one small uh, part of our, our, of our country, bushfires ravaged and they devastated acres and acres and acres of land. And uh, 210 lives were lost and 2,000 properties destroyed. Every day, every hour, every week, every year, these so-called natural disasters take place. I find it fascinating that we've changed our language. We, we now call them natural disasters. They used to be called acts of God. Because that's what they are. We can't control them. We can't predict them. We can't prevent them. We just live with the consequences. It's not just the nature that's under chaos uh, verse 13 is a scary verse. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. It's about to get worse. Because it's not just nature that's in turmoil. Uh, lives are lost and people are under turmoil. This bizarre trumpet of a, of a star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. It's like a volcano. And at this volcano comes, verse 3, these locusts. And they come down upon the earth, and these swarms of locusts don't eat the crops. What do they, what do they devour in verse 4? They were told not to harm the grass, or any plant, or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They're there to devour people. They're there, there to devour people who are not believers, who don't have the stamp of the Lord Jesus Christ on their heads. And verse 5, they were not given, any, they were not given power to kill them, but just to torch them for five months. And verse 6, these people will long to die, but death will elude them. This is a horrific picture of a society and of a people who are in torment and pain. They're being stung like a scorpion, and they just want to die. That is our world. Death, disease, agony, torment. And the question is, why? Why don't I preach a nice, happy sermon tonight? You know, it's a bit like News at 10. You know, you go from these, uh, these starving kids and bombing in Baghdad, but they feel obliged to put a nice, light-hearted story into the news, a happy ever, ever after story. And the danger is, friends, that we do that, and we pretend that this world is Eden, and we pretend that this world is perfect, and we think we can create paradise here on earth, and we can't. We're just waiting and waiting and waiting for the new creation. So why would God do this? When you read these chapters, do you think, oh, God is a bit of an ogre? God's a nasty God? 
Let me try and turn your thinking upside down. When you read these chapters, you're supposed to think, yeah, God is powerful. Yes, God is sovereign. Now, here's the shock. You're supposed to think God is merciful. You're supposed to be able to say, wow, my God is so merciful. Why do I say that? Because there's a word that comes throughout chapter 8 and chapter 9. It's repeated time and time and time again. It's the word a third. A third of the trees were burnt up. A third of the, the fish were destroyed. A third of the rivers was turned bitter. A third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars and a third of the people were killed. And yet a third is a massive amount, but it's not the majority. A third were struck, but two thirds were spared. And you're supposed to say, we don't deserve that. It deserved to be 100% destroyed and no one spared. It's like the pictures you see of the Haiti earthquake. And you know, all these buildings have gone to rubble and somehow, miraculously, there's a whole town that survived. And you think that town are thinking, hey, we are really important, we are really successful, hey, we've done all these good things. No, they're saying, wow, we are really blessed, thank you, thank you, thank you for sparing us. And yes, sure, God's wrath is being poured out into his world, but God's mercy is that two-thirds are spared. And we sit here in Australia, and you know, by and large, we do not experience all the chaos that's going on around the world today. We don't experience all the cyclones and all the volcanoes and all the earthquakes and all the floods. By and large, we are very, very, very blessed here. Do you ever stop and say, God, you've been so merciful to us. And God in his mercy is actually using these things to warn people and to call people back to him. When you go through the Bible, that's how God always uses these kind of things. You know? I brought the floods, yet you did not turn to me. I caused your crops to fail, yet you did not turn to me. I brought the disease, but you didn't turn to me. And you kind of hear God saying, you know, yeah, I'm in charge of the hail and the floods and the hurricanes and the volcanoes, but are they going to turn to God? Well, look at the verdict in 9 verse 20. Surely when people see a world collapsing and chaos around, they're going to turn to God, aren't they? The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues. This is the horrific verse. They still did not repent of the works of their hands. They didn't stop worshipping these false gods of demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. It's incredible hardness of heart. They see the world collapsing. They see people suffering. God is shouting, look, here I am. Come to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. Repent, repent. And they don't. Now, isn't that what you see around the world in, in terms of, of uh, natural disasters? I think back to, to January 2009. As the bushfires were ravaging. There was a big call, a call to prayer. And people flocked into the churches, and the churches were full. But where are they now? Oh, you know, the homes are being rebuilt. They've got their possessions back, and 
Sure, they call on God in a time of need, but once life is back to normal, they'll forget God again. Because, hey, I'm in control of my life. And you see that all around the world, you know, aftermath of the New Orleans floods, the cyclone there. Uh, churches were packed. For the, for the first couple of Sundays after that event, churches were packed as people flocked to God. But where are they now? They're worshipping their idols of gold and silver and wood that can't save. So what will bring people to repentance, friends? What do you think will cause people here in Kirribilli to repent and believe and turn to Jesus? If God caused the harbour to, to flood so that those beautiful waterfront apartments were destroyed, would that bring them to God? No. They just moved to a bigger property up the hill. We've got to pray that God will use these disasters and use this chaos to bring people to himself. But the Bible is realistic. What people need, what we need, what people need is the word of God. They need the word of life. They need words which will explain the plagues and explain the chaos and words that will make sense of this world and words which promise them the new creation. They need the word of God. And that's my second point, that we need to have confidence. Yes, God's word is in chaos, but God's word is true. And that's chapter 10. Because John sees another mighty angel. And this one is quite, uh, has this divine aura. He was robed in a cloud. Always a picture of God there. With a rainbow over his head. Think back to chapter 1. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. A bit like the, the risen Lord Jesus. And this angel was holding his little scroll that lay open in his hand. And he planted his right foot on the sea and his right foot, left foot on the land, a picture of authority over the sea and the land. Verse 5, Then the angel I'd seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he has the authority, and he swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all in them, and the earth and all in that, and the sea and all that's in it. And he said, listen carefully, there's, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, Here's the key verse. The mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now what is this mystery of God that has been announced to the servants the prophets? What is the mystery of God that God has revealed, to, has kept hidden from the prophets but revealed to us? If you know your Bibles, the mystery of God throughout the Bible is the promise that God would send his Messiah to rescue you from your sins. The mystery of God is that God in his mercy would reconcile wretched sinners to himself. The mystery of God is that God is, is bringing Jews and Gentiles together through the person called Jesus Christ. The mystery of God is that you can stand on that last day with your robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And the mystery of God is that God would love you enough and lavish his love on you that he would send his son to die for you. That is the mystery of God that was hidden for ages. And then Jesus stepped into the world. And that's what we have. The mystery revealed to us. And then verse 8, the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go and take the scroll. Now what is this scroll? It could be the scroll that the, the Lord Jesus had on the throne. It could be the book of Revelation. I think it's just the whole word of God. The little scroll which contains the words of God. 
And so verse 9, I went to the angel and asked him to give me a little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will, it will be as sweet as honey. And so John took the little scroll and he ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour and I was told, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, languages and kings. Eat the word of God, digest the word of God and then speak it to others. Speak it to people's nations, languages and kings. Tell them about the mystery of the gospel. Tell them about reconciliation through Christ. Tell them about forgiveness and hope and the new creation. And that's chapter 11. These bizarre two witnesses, which stands for the church speaking the word of God. Have you got it? John is told that this word, the word of the mystery of God, the word of the gospel, is what's going to bring people to repentance and faith. So take it and eat it and digest it. That's what he does. John listens to the word and obeys and takes that gospel to all nations. I think those words are important. Taste, so eat it. Take and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Isn't that what the gospel does? Isn't that what the word of God does? When, when you taste it, when you taste it in your lips, it is beautiful and it's sweet. Because it's words of life and it's words of hope and it's words of comfort and it's words of salvation. The most beautiful, precious words you can think of. But it's also bitter. It's like a double-edged sword because when the word of God is spoken and people reject it, it leaves that sort of sour feeling in your stomach because you've spoken the hope of the gospel to people and they're rejecting it. Or it contains things which you don't like which are hard to hear, how about God's wrath, maybe? And it's hard on the stomach, but it's the word of God. It is the truth. And John needed to not just look at it, but actually eat it, and digest it, and nourish him, and empower him to speak to others. And friends, that's what we need to do with the word of God. It's a bit like going to a fanciest restaurant in Sydney and ordering this beautiful meal and this meal comes to you in a plate and you look at it and you say, oh, that's just beautiful. And the presentation is glorious and smells lovely. I might just look at it for a while and I've got my iPhone here. I might take a picture of that food. It's just, just, it's just, it's just lovely, isn't it? And then you walk out the restaurant and you haven't eaten it. What's the point of that? If that food is going to really taste beautiful on your lips, you've got to eat it. If that food is going to nourish you and strengthen you and equip you to live, you've got to take it and eat it. And that's what John had to do with the word of God. Not just know it, not just look at it from afar, but actually devour it and allow the word of God to enter him. And feed him and nourish him and equip him and sustain him and empower him to preach to others. So is that your attitude towards the word of God? Is this just a book? Or do you long to actually just taste the sweetness of these words that bring you hope and comfort and meaning and purpose and give you the promise of the future? 
Do you delight in the scriptures which are like a double-edged sword? Do you, do you say, yeah, they're sweeter than honey on the lips and more precious than gold? Is that your priority in life? Is actually to know this word better so that you can better understand God and his world that you live in and the promises he's made to you? And will that equip you to take these words of life to a world in chaos and a world that needs to hear the gospel so they can repent and believe? See, the more that we understand our world, the more you understand where you're heading, the more you understand your Savior, the more you love the Word of God, the more you get out there with the Word of life. Take it. Eat it. Digest it. Preach it. Live it and love it. Let me leave you with a great encouragement. Just know the time that you're living in. 11 verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven. This is the end. Which said, The kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. See, that's the truth that the, the world, kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. The victory's already been won. It was won at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Satan has been defeated at that, at that cross. Jesus is reigning. We're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the day when he will reign forever and ever. And if you know that's the world that you're living in, a world of victory at Calvary and a world of waiting to see your Savior, then please be realistic. I was in chaos. Pray that God would use those disasters to bring to himself. But we have the scroll, we have the word. Eat it, take it, digest it, let it taste sweet on your lips and then preach it to others. Let me pray. I'm going to give you a moment by yourself and the Lord's prompted me to read um, Psalm 119 bits of please make this prayer your own about the word of God your word O Lord is eternal it stands firm in the heavens Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. I rejoice in in your promises. I wait for your salvation. I follow your commands. I obey your statutes. I love them greatly. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign over the events of this world. Lord, I do pray for those who even now are suffering 
the consequences of these natural disasters. Please provide for them. Please meet their physical needs. But Lord, I do pray that people would take the word of God to them. That people would preach the hope of Christ to them. They wouldn't put their trust in gold or silver or other idols. And Lord, help us as a church to, to so love your word, to devour it, to delight in it, to handle it correctly, to have confidence in it. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would make us a people who are bold in speaking that word to other people. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.